Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Father, you have given us your Son, Jesus, the bread of life to sustain us. Lord, we ask that you, as we contemplate your word, would sustain us here as well. Lord, open up the words of life to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're embarking on a new sermon series that's going to take us here from the beginning of Matthew 14 all the way through the end of Matthew 17. If you remember the structure of the Gospel of Matthew, it's built in sections of narrative followed by discourses that collect teachings of Jesus. And we just finished chapter 13 before Holy Week. That was the third discourse out of five. And now we're in a section of narrative, and the narrative is going to take us through some important events. We're going to see, obviously, the death of John the Baptist here. But as we go forward, we'll see Peter's climactic confession of faith, you are the Christ, in Matthew 16. And in Matthew 17, we will witness the transfiguration of Jesus as well. And that will carry us into the fourth discourse in chapter 18. As we begin in Matthew 14, we have an interesting juxtaposition. 
two feasts that Matthew shows us. One feast in the palace of Herod, one feast out in the wilderness presided over by Jesus. It's a stark contrast, these two feasts. We see on the one hand what it's like to sit at table with the kings of this world. And on the other hand, what it's like to sit at the table with the king of the world that is to come. When the people of Israel were coming out of the wilderness, when they were on the very threshold of the promised land, Moses spoke prophetically. He anticipated that one day they would desire to have a king like all the other nations around them. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 17, long before the people had this desire, Moses gave them God's regulation on what a king should be, on how a king should live. The king of God's people must be chosen by God, Moses said. He must be an Israelite and not a foreigner. He must not acquire too many horses in imitation of the power of the Egyptians And he must not acquire too many wives to imitate the kings of the lands around them. He must not acquire too much silver or gold, Moses says. Instead, he must keep the law with him. And he must read it daily. He must learn to fear God. And he must do God's will. With all that, the king of God's people must remain humble and faithful to God. Now, that was an empty instruction. It's not like Moses wrote these words down and, and they never became relevant to the people. Indeed, that anticipation, that prophecy was fulfilled. It happens in the book of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people rise up and desire a king. They're tired of being ruled over by judges and, and they want to have a king like the nations do, a proper king. And so the prophet Samuel gives them a warning. He says, the king is going to take from you. The king that you appoint to be over you is going to take from the people. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He'll take your fields, your vineyards, your orchards. He'll take a tenth of your grain. He'll take your best servants. He'll take your donkeys. And he'll take a tenth of your flocks as well. Six times Samuel warns them with the word take. He will take from you. Take, 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 take. The king will take from the people. Basically, Samuel says in 1 Samuel 8, 17, you shall be his slaves. Two visions of kingship. Moses' vision, the ideal, the king as he ought to be, Samuel's warning, the reality, the king as he all too often is. And here at the beginning of Matthew 14, we see these two pictures fulfilled in the flesh. Two kings, one who embodies the ideal, the other who lives up to all the warnings. Herod Antipas is the tetrarch, the, the king the ruler in this northern region where Jesus does so much of his ministry. He's not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. He's actually a foreigner. The Herodians are from a foreign clan who have Roman patronage and they rule over the people 
of Israel. He doesn't just rule over them. He takes from them. He's not the kind of king that Moses spoke of. He's just the opposite. But Jesus is the Mosaic king. Jesus is the one who lives up to what a king ought to be. And here Matthew sets them side by side. So we can see both. Side by side so that we can consider what kind of king it is that we want to serve. So that's what we're going to do this morning, simply. We're going to take a look at the comparison. We're going to look at the two feasts, the palace party on the one hand and the wilderness provision on the other. We'll look at the two kings, Herod Antipas and Jesus Christ. We'll look at their two motives as well. Fear of the people versus compassion for the people. Let's start in the palace with the party. Herod throws a party, a great feast. It is his birthday and it's time to celebrate. And so he throws a party which is uh, described for us in not much detail by Matthew, but we get a little bit more from Mark's Gospel. We get a sense of the guests, the entertainments, and also the dish that was served. The guests at Herod's birthday party, this banquet is filled with what we would call the elites. He has gathered together, Mark tells us, his nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. This is the kind of party, in other words, that you might read about after the fact, but would not be invited to or welcome to. This is a party for the upper crust. This is a party for the people who are at the top of the food chain to celebrate the one who's in charge, the people who receive all of his largesse, the people who uh, he relies upon to maintain his power. These are the guests that Herod assembles for his feast. For entertainment, they have something truly unusual, a dance. A dance by Herod's stepdaughter slash niece, Salome, a girl who is estimated to have been about 12 to 14 years old when these events take place. Because of that entertainment, a dish is served at the feast, literally the head of John the Baptist on a platter, The fact that it's presented on a platter is really telling as they sit around at the table feasting, as they're eating off of platters to have the head of the prophet served up as if it were just another course at this meal, another item on the menu. The life of the prophet offered up. A man whose only crime was in modern parlance to speak truth to power. Now, much is made, historically speaking, over the generations of Salome's dance, this seductive dance. But Salome did not kill John the Baptist. She is not the villain in the story. She's just a girl who happens to be there, exploited by her mother, degraded by her stepfather, who is also her uncle. She would go on to marry another uncle and, as F.F. Bruce notes, become both aunt and sister-in-law to her mother. It's a testament to the depravity of the Herodians. If you were looking for a horrible exemplar of the kind of kings that Samuel had warned about, you could not do better than this ruling family noted for its intermarriage, noted for its corruption, noted for its horrible extravagances. 
here we get a picture of just how bad it was in this moment. But make no mistake, the crime committed at this feast is not committed by the dancing girl. It's committed by the king who rules over all of it. John the Baptist, by the way, in condemning the marriage of Herod, was not being puritanical. He wasn't being some sort of goody-two-shoes who just frowned on other people's happiness and tried to prevent as much of it as possible. John the Baptist was doing the only thing that John the Baptist could do in this circumstance. If you read Calvin's commentary on this moment, he makes an interesting remark about the dilemma here. He says, ignorance of history has led many persons into a fruitless debate. Here's the debate. Have I a right to marry the woman who was formerly married to my brother? He says, though the modesty of nature recoils from such a marriage, yet John condemns the rape still more than the incest. For it was by violence or a stratagem that Herod had deprived his brother of his lawful wife. I have to admit, this is a passage I didn't fully understand until studying it. I've always kind of assumed that that Herod's brother died, and then Herod married his widow. But that's not at all what actually took place. Uh, What Herod did was he divorced his wife, which actually caused a war with her father, and then he stole the wife of his still-living brother because he liked her better. And that wife happened to be also his niece, and also the niece of the brother that he stole her from as well. So there were a lot of things that, again, in modern parlance would have made this relationship problematic. And John the Baptist finds himself in a position where he must speak out against it. He must do this. This divorce was lawless, but the covetousness behind it was actually worse. It was bad on the face of it, but the way that it was done was even worse. Now, John the Baptist wasn't the first prophet who found himself in an awkward situation in relationship to a king. You could appreciate that a prophet who has the ear of a king, as Mark tells us, John the Baptist had the ear of Herod, might have a vested interest in not speaking too loudly about the the misbehavior of the king. There are a lot of advantages for the church that could arise if the prophet has the ear of the king. But a prophet ultimately has to obey God, not man. King David, he was a good king who did almost exactly the same thing that Herod did. He didn't just take another man's wife, he conspired at the murder of the man so that it might appear to be a legal thing because he was, after all, a good king. Or at least he wanted to appear to be. The prophet Nathan could have said nothing. But the prophet Nathan called him out. Nathan showed the king his guilt, and the king repented in 2 Samuel 12. But now, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, a prophet far greater than Nathan, the last prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, finds himself in the same situation. He confronts the king. He's imprisoned for it. And then he's murdered for it. And Calvin says that his example is a good one for any Christian who aspires to have influence in this world. 
He says, this deserves our attention. For though John knew by experience that it was in many respects advantageous for him to have some share in the good wishes of the Tetrarch, yet was he not afraid to offend him when he could find no other way of securing that favor than by wickedly conniving at a known and disgraceful crime. He could have remained silent to maintain his influence for the good, but he chooses rather to turn a friend into an enemy than to encourage by flattery or silence an evil which he has a duty to reprove with severity. And then he gives a warning to all us who would aspire to sit at that table, for all of us who would like to be invited to these kingly banquets. Calvin says, when we perceive that the guests are compelled to pollute their eyes by beholding this detestable exhibition, let us learn from it that those who sit at the tables of kings are often involved in many crimes. That's the first picture of kingship that Matthew holds out to us. You can have a king like Herod, and if you sit at his table, this is what you'll witness. This is what you'll be a party to. But immediately, he contrasts this with another feast held by another king. And he tells us of the feeding of the 5,000. Now consider the contrast between these two feasts. We can go down the list once again and think about the guests and the entertainment and even the dish that is served at this feast. The guests at Jesus' feast were not noblemen. They were crowds of commoners. Bread, augmented with a little fish, was the common diet of the poor in this age. It was their staple. So a crowd of commoners gathered together at Jesus' table. Not only that, but sick people too. People who have traveled to encounter him, but they've traveled by foot. About 5,000 men, we're told, not even counting the women and the children. That is who is gathered at Jesus' table. The entertainment was really not entertainment at all. Jesus didn't entertain. Jesus worked wonders. When the sick came to him in the wilderness, he healed them. When the people gathered together, he taught them. And when they were hungry, he fed them. That's what happened at Jesus' table. And the dish that was served at that feast was the body and the blood of Christ. It was the life of the spotless lamb who would sacrifice himself, as Matthew told us in Matthew chapter 1, to save his people from their sin. The feeding of the 5,000 is actually the only miracle that Jesus performs that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. It's the only one that all four of the Gospels actually reference. Now, all the way back in the fall of 2017, I preached a sermon series through John chapter 6, which is the parallel of the feeding of the 5,000 in John's gospel. If you are interested in digging even deeper into the feeding of the 5,000, you can go back and listen to those sermons. The title of the series was For the Life of the World. When you read about the feeding of the 5,000 in John's gospel, some connections become really obvious that are much more subtle in Matthew's account. Jesus makes it clear that this wilderness, this desolate place that the people have followed him to, 
the bread that is broken and is distributed, that these are intentional references to Israel's wandering in the wilderness and to God's providing bread from heaven, manna, to sustain them. He says in John 6.33, For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. Interestingly, when Jesus holds His feast, do you know what the people do afterwards? What their first impulse is? Well, they have two. One is, give us more bread. We like this. We could get used to it. The second thing was they sought to crown him by force. In other words, they understood that they were living in this contrast as well. They had King Herod, but they saw King Jesus as better. But they sought to make him their king by force, to make him the kind of king that Herod was. They imagined that the solution to all of their problems would be just to replace the bad king with a good king and to keep the throne the same. Now, the gospel accounts of the feeding of the 5,000 and also the accounts of the feeding of the 4,000, which is coming shortly in Matthew's gospel, have some things in common with the description of the Lord's Supper and also with the meal that Jesus shares in Luke 24 on the Emmaus Road. They bear strong similarities in the idea of Jesus taking the bread and blessing it and breaking it. These similarities are intentional. These references all go together. As one commentator says, in all the meals the evangelists realized that there had been a Eucharistic act and expressed it in their wording to the multitudes by the lake, to the twelve on the night before his death, and to disciples at every Eucharistic feast, from then till now, Jesus gives a foretaste of the feast of the Messianic kingdom. When Matthew holds these two feasts up side by side, presents us with these two kings, the question implicit, of course, is this, which one do you prefer? One king feasts with his lords in a palace, one king feeds the hungry in the desert. Which of these tables are you sitting at? Which of these tables do you desire to be at? The fate of the righteous when they're seated in the palace party is clear from John's example. And yet, tragically, all too often, we long to be there anyway. We're frustrated by the sense that we're excluded from those high tables, not welcomed there. We long to be accepted in the corridors of power. If Israel longed for a king like the other nations, well, so do we. Their problem was that they were longing for the wrong king. Is that our problem too? I pray that it isn't. Because in the contrast between those two kings, you have an absolute antithesis. Herod gives us a portrait of human power. Jesus, a portrait of divine power. To teach you to long for the right king, Matthew exposes you to the wrong king. He gives you a little dose of Herod so that you'll long for Jesus more. And if you think about Herod, if you try to sum up his character based on what we see here, I think it would be fair to say that Herod was a weak man. Despite all his power, he was a weak man who feared 
to be seen as weak. He didn't want people to see the weakness of his character. And in that sense, he's very similar to Pilate. As we encountered Pilate over Holy Week, Pilate is an interesting and conflicted man who sees the right thing to do but feels incapable of doing it because of his fear of the people. There is a similarity and anticipation in this relationship between Herod and John and what will later be the case between Pilate and Jesus. But there are precedents in the Old Testament as well. Think of King Ahab and his relationship with Elijah. Ahab was always at odds with Elijah, but he knew that the prophet spoke the truth. It was his wife Jezebel who was dead set on taking the life of Ahab. In that sense, you might say that story anticipates the fate of John. We can sympathize with men like Herod. We can sympathize with weakness like this because we know what it's like to be conflicted in this way. We know what it's like to see the truth and feel powerless to do it. To see what we ought to do and ought to be, but feel like there are too many pressures on us, that society's eyes are upon us, and we cannot quite do the thing that God would have us do. This weakness, though, even though we can sympathize with it, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to see that ultimately it is exploitative and it is destructive. It's weakness like this that tears kingdoms down. It is weakness like this that tears people down. And the tragedy is you've served plenty of Herods in your life. There have been plenty of people whose power you've aspired to, whose respect you have desired, whose favor you have worked for who were just like this. Leaders who put on a show of hardness and strength in order to hide their weakness. Selfish men who put their own desires ahead of others. Whatever opposes them, they destroy it. When they're called to repentance, they harden their hearts. They debase the people who depend on them, no matter how close they are. When you chase human powers, when you seek the favor of human kings, this is what you're courting. When you turn to these would-be saviors for deliverance, what you get instead is this exploitation, this debasement, and ultimately, destruction. But in contrast to all of this stands Jesus. Jesus providing for his people in the wilderness, divine power incarnate, demonstrating by his abilities that he is not weak. Jesus can feed the multitudes with his strength. There's nothing weak about him, just the opposite. He is a strong man who will willingly take upon himself weakness in order to deliver the weak. At Jesus' table, no one is exploited. No one is debased. Instead, they're satisfied and they're lifted up. Jesus rebuilds and renews what has been destroyed. He raises up and exalts what has been crushed. But you won't find Jesus in a palace. You won't find him surrounded by the influential. You'll find him in a desolate place with the poor and the sick and the needy. Whether you seek your king in a palace or you seek him in a desert, depends on what kind of king you seek. At the heart, though, Matthew doesn't just give us two feasts and two kings. 
He also gives us two motivations. He tells us what it is that drives each of these kings. Fear of the people on the one hand and compassion for the people on the other. Fear is Herod's motivation. He fears the people. He fears what his guests, his followers, will think of him. But he fears the uprising of the people he rules if a guy like John the Baptist speaks too loudly about his crimes. He fears the humiliation in the eyes of his nobles if he doesn't keep his oath even though it was stupid and drunkenly given. Why would anyone seek a king like this? Well, the answer to that question is simple. Those who are led by fear will seek leaders who are fearful too. If we are led by fear, it's no surprise that our leaders will be fearful too. If we ourselves take counsel of our weakness, we shouldn't be amazed that we choose to follow those who are weak as well. As long as you live by fear, you'll keep finding yourself at Herod's table. You'll be party to the crimes of the powerful. You'll witness the outrages and justify your silence. But there is a corollary, and it is a hopeful one. Those who are led by compassion will seek leaders filled with compassion. Just as those who are fearful will find the Herods in their lives and serve them, those who are driven with compassion will find a leader led by compassion in Jesus Christ. Because compassion is the motivation for his actions, Matthew tells us. He sees the people and he has compassion on them for a reason. He has compassion because he sees that their zeal has led them to this desolate place. These people have left the comforts of home behind. They have followed him into a desert without even considering whether or not they can live there and be fed there. They've done it out of a desire to be in his presence, to follow him. Jesus looks upon them and he sees sheep without a shepherd. He doesn't judge them. He doesn't condemn them. He loves them, and he has compassion on them, and he wants to take care of them. That compassion is a kingly attribute. It is an attribute of divine strength. It demonstrates who Jesus is. Rather than exploiting the people in order to gain power, Jesus uses power to serve the people, to sacrifice on their behalf so that he can give them life. As you contemplate these two pictures of kingship, as you contemplate the fear and the compassion, there are lessons for us to learn. There is a lesson for those of us who are still seeking. For those of us who have not yet found Christ, know that Jesus regards you with compassion. Jesus regards you with compassion. The other kings, the other rulers in your life, they may look down upon you. They may seek to crush you, to exploit you, to use you for their ends, but not Jesus. Those kings will devour you. Jesus will feed you. In the desolate wilderness of this life, Jesus is the king who will sustain you. And nothing stands between you and him. He is there in love, calling to you. There's another lesson, though, and I want to end on this. 
It's a lesson that would be easy for us to miss. It's a lesson to disciples. Because Jesus' disciples in the feeding of the 5,000 learn a lesson that, that could completely go by your, your head, especially if you don't get in and study all the tenses of the words in the original Greek. Uh, we're not going to do that. So, so take my word for it that, that what I'm about to tell you is, is definitely justified. But Jesus, at a certain moment, tells the disciples that you should do this. But he says, you should feed them. Jesus does not say when the disciples tell him we should cut these people loose, they should go get some food, Jesus, this is a desolate place. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 don't send them away. I will feed them. Jesus says, you do it. And the disciples say we can't do it because we don't have enough. With Jesus, we have between us five loaves and two fishes. This is not enough. What we've been given is not sufficient to meet the needs of the people in the wilderness. The solution for the disciples is that the people should fend for themselves. That they should go out and they should get their own bread. Jesus then takes the not enough of the disciples and proves to them that it is more than enough. He takes what they have and in the distribution multiplies it so not only is everyone fed, but there's plenty left over as well. Now we see that and we marvel at Jesus' miraculous ability. But if we had been there, if we had been among the twelve, if we had been the ones who were like, look, I did bring some bread, but not for everybody. Be reasonable, Jesus. The inner circle, we could have a feast, but first send these people away. The lesson they learned was that whatever they had been given would always be enough to do what they had been called to do. Jesus proved to them that if they would just use what they have to feed the people, then there would be plenty to satisfy them all. As disciples of Jesus Christ, in the wilderness of this life, we will always find ourselves surrounded by people in need and want, people who are hungry physically, but also spiritually. And it's very easy to look at the scale of the need and then to count the resources that God has actually given you and to come to the obvious conclusion that it is not enough. That there's too much pain, that there's too much need, that what little we have is, is enough for us but certainly not more than that, that we should use it to meet our needs and not waste it on a problem that could never be solved. But the lesson of this feast for disciples is that the needs of the people in the wilderness, for those needs, the cross is enough. What we've been given is Enough. The cross is sufficient. Jesus satisfies. You must not fear that the needs are too great, that the bread of life will somehow be insufficient. You must not be afraid that the gospel that brought you to faith is somehow not enough to lead others there as well. And you must not send people away to help themselves as if Jesus doesn't suffice. Instead, you must trust that no matter how desolate the place, no matter how sick and hungry the sinner, the life of Jesus is the food they need. 
And there's enough Jesus for us all. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.